Ephesians 5, we'll be reading from the ESV translation. Cue up Ephesians 5, beating in verse 3, and I'll do the rest this morning. Si habla español, abran sus Biblias a Efesios capítulo 5, versículos 3 a 14. And for the past uh, few weeks now, Paul has been giving us important handles to help us to live out our new lives in Christ. How we've come into this new life, that's the focus of Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, right? Which can be summarized to say, you are a new creation in Christ who lives in a new community called the church. That's Ephesians 1 through 3. You are a new creation who lives in a new community. Following from this in Ephesians chapters 4 through 6, the rest of the book, Paul essentially says, hey, you are new, so be new. You are new, so be new. And Paul says, here's what it looks like to live out the new life. Here's what it looks like to live out the new life together in the church, in a relationship to those out in the world who don't believe what we believe, how it looks to live the new life in our marriages, in our parenting, in our jobs, and in any context when we're acting in or experiencing authority, and even in the spiritual warfare that ensues as we live out our new lives in a broken and old and embattled world. Because we are new people, we've been challenged to be who we are and to continue As Paul said earlier on in chapter 4, putting off and doing away with and getting rid of what is no longer compatible with who we are. To put off the the dirty, uh, old, sin-stained clothes of our lives apart from Christ and to put on our new identity in Christ as we, uh, so to speak, get dressed every day for the Christian life. And utilizing Paul's metaphor here, Uh, We could summarize the past uh, two Sundays by saying that two weeks ago we were encouraged to get dressed differently than we used to. That's Ephesians 4, 17 through 24. And then last week, uh, Jason encouraged us to get dressed in love. Get dressed differently. Get dressed in love. That's 4, 25 through 5, 2. And this morning, as we look to God's word, uh, Christ has another principle to guide and to govern his people. As we put off the old put on the new, and get dressed and ready to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel and to enjoy all the blessedness that comes in our new lives together. And so uh, without further ado, let's read from God's word, beginning in verse 1 to get the context of the passage, reading all the way through verse 14, and then praying briefly for God's help. Beginning in verse 1, the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake! O sleeper, 
and to rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. These are God's words. Let's pray for God's help. Oh Lord, we draw near to you and we say thank you that you have loved us and you've sent your son to be born for us, to live for us, to die for us, to be raised from the dead for us and to welcome us into a new kind of resurrection life with him. And Lord, this morning we ask for your help. As we are new people, yet we are still tempted, we are still prone to, we are still struggling against living in the old ways. We pray that you would fill us with your spirit to help us to receive and to believe and to understand and yes, even apply these words that we might put off the old, embrace the new, and experience the joy, the blessedness, the better and more excellent way you have for us, Lord, when we live in the way you've called us to. So help me to be clear, help us to hear you, and Lord, would you glorify your Son as we consider what he's done to bring us into this new life together and all the ways in which we can live it for his glory. Be with us, we ask and pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, have you ever had the experience of getting dressed in the dark? <laughs> dressed in the dark. If so, how did it go for you? <laughs> I can think of uh, at least one time at least one time, a few years back, which was uh, right after our oldest son, he's four now, had just been born, and he was still sleeping in our room uh, with my wife and I. And so I woke up on a Sunday morning, much like this one today, and I went to go finish preparing my sermon, and I was uh, slipping out of bed and into the closet, which was generous to call it a walk-in closet. You could walk into it, and then you were kind of stuck in this closet. So I'm in the closet. It's dark everywhere. And I'm trying not to wake up a sleeping infant and so, you know, ruin my little morning plan there. And so I did my utmost in that moment to find what I needed, you know, clothing-wise, as I'm changing, getting ready for the new day, and I am uh, trying to slip all of these new clothes on without making any noise or falling over. Because, you know, when you're, it's dark and you can't see well, you're kind of tripping around and your balance and equilibrium is off. So I'm doing all this, and I quietly slip out of the closet through the bedroom door and out into uh, the kitchen and set my things on the table. <laughs> and as I do, I turn on the light. And as the light comes on, I see my reflection in the hallway mirror. Okay? And so here's how I did. <laughs> I discovered that not only was my shirt on backwards, <laughs> but my gym shorts were also inside out with the pockets hanging right out and backwards as well. <laughs> It probably could not have gone, gone any more wrong in that attempt to get dressed <laughs> in the dark. Okay, so I'm going I'm to assume that we'd agree, right? Uh, getting dressed in the dark is not a good way to be well prepared for the, the new day you're heading into. Because as you get dressed in the dark, you're a lot more prone to put on dirty clothes that should have gone in the hamper or the wash that have been sitting there on the floor uh, to put on your shirt or, or shorts or both <laughs> backwards, uh, or put together an outfit that uh, maybe doesn't match at all. You know, it's sometimes easy to mistake a, a blue sock for a black sock or a gray sock or things like that, or even worse, if you're not able to get your colors just right because you don't see them in the light. Point is, you could easily find yourself wearing something <laughs> incompatible with unbecoming of, maybe unhelpful for, or, or just in some way out of place with whatever you're heading into as you start your new day if you get dressed in the dark. And funny enough, in Ephesians 5, verses 3 through 14, the Apostle Paul, he tells us that this also is not a good way to get dressed and ready to live the Christian life either. Connecting the dots on, on Paul's uh, metaphor that we've been experiencing these past couple of Sundays, his metaphor about exchanging garments of clothing as we put off the old and as we put on the new. We've heard this already, but 4, 17 through 24 taught us that as we live the Christian life, we need to get dressed differently than we did before. Our new life should look different than our old life. And then the next passage, 4, 25 through 5, 2 taught us that we need to get dressed in Love, that's the governing principle that guides us as we get dressed and we need to put off all the actions and all the attitudes that are incompatible 
with the kind of love we've received from God in Christ. And today, following in that path, we could summarize our passage as saying this, okay? We need to get dressed with the lights on. (laughs) Get dressed differently, get dressed in love, and today, church, get dressed with the lights on. We need to get dressed with the lights on. Because even as Christians, even as those upon whom the light of Christ has shone, we realize we are still prone to, we are still tempted, we are still experiencing a remaining darkness in us. We heard a couple weeks ago, we are new people, but we live in an old world. God has opened our eyes to see the glory of Christ in the gospel, yet Paul prayed earlier in Ephesians that the Holy Spirit would come and do what? Grant us even more spiritual sight. Help the the dimness of our spiritual sight and open up the eyes of our hearts in faith so that we could better and more clearly see what's true and also see and identify and put off what's false. So we're prone to still walk in the dark. Therefore, we need to get dressed with the lights on. That's the guiding and governing principle for living out the new life that Paul has called us to that we're going to learn about this morning. We need to get dressed with the lights on, so to speak, so that we don't pick up our old sin-stained clothes and put them back on. We need to get dressed with the lights on, as we'll see, so that we're ready to to walk in and to to live in what should be the brightest, the clearest, and the most well-lit place in the world, and that is the church. We need to get dressed with the lights on to make sure we're taking on actions and attitudes that are becoming of who we are and becoming of our life together. And so as Christians, if we're getting dressed in in the dark, it it means that, what we're going to see today, is that we are needing to bring the the light of God, which in Scripture, the light typically uh, is representing, is a picture for the truth of God. We need to bring the light of God, that is the truth of God, to bear upon the actions and attitudes we're prone to clothe ourselves with uh, and and to take on. If we're getting dressed in the dark in our Christian life, it means that we're somehow failing to see those old clothes, right, in the way that God sees them. We're failing to see them as they are, and we need to see them how God does so that we can be better equipped and better prepared to put them off and to put on something much better. We need to put off these old actions and attitudes because— they dishonor God. As we'll see in our passage today, they, they, they cheapen these old actions and attitudes that Paul's going to talk about before us. They, they cheapen what God says is valuable. And ultimately, if we take on these actions and attitudes that are outlined here in chapter 5 that Paul says, put these things off, these things, if we don't put them off, they, they, they destroy. They destroy, they harm, they injure God's beloved people, his cherished bride for whom Christ gave his life. Okay, so that's the burden of our passage this morning. That's my burden for us, that we would see the old actions and attitudes that we're tempted to embrace as they really are, so that we can get rid of them whenever they creep close to us from out of the dark corners of our hearts. And as we do so, we're going to have three points that guide our time, three points that will provide an outline for the rest of our time together, and we'll take them one at a time. rather. The first of these is this, get dressed in the light. Get dressed in the light. This is verses 3 through 6. And in this case, in this first section, Paul is challenging us to see certain actions and certain attitudes that we're clothing ourselves in, that we're prone to clothe ourselves in, in the way that God does, to shine the light of his truth upon these things, to see them as they really are in comparison to how we used to see them and in comparison to how the world around us, how the culture around us might still see them. And in our, in our passage today, we mentioned this going into the break time, but especially what Paul's going to focus on and hit on today is actions and attitudes relating to sexual immorality. That's what he's focusing upon because he realizes this is a pervasive thing. <laughs> In the culture then and in the culture now, we were created by God and in God's image as sexual beings made to enjoy the good gift of sexuality that he's given to us. But like everything else, through the fall and through our sin, this aspect of the image of God has been marred in us. And even as we heard earlier in Ephesians that we are being restored in him who is the image of God and holiness and righteousness, that is Jesus Christ, there's still 
for many of us, a lot of ongoing renewal, a lot of ongoing restoration that needs to take place as it concerns us and our actions and our attitudes and our past regarding our sexuality, our sexual experience and practices. We need to have God's word come, shine a light on these things, not to shame us, not to tear us down, but to lead us away from what is unfruitful and destructive and into a better way of enjoying his good gifts. And so look with me at verse three. Paul says, shine a light on these things, see them as God does, and church, put them off. He says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And the saints, that is the holy ones, God's holy people, set apart, separate, distinct from the world, and not marked with the same kinds of actions and attitudes as those in the culture around them. He says, put off these things. And it's worth stating that the culture in Ephesus back then (laughs) was not prudish, okay, about these kinds of things. Uh, Sexuality in the ancient world was uh, not only prevalent, but normative. Uh, It was something that was kind of even an amoral category. You just did what you wanted sexually. Um, As long as you didn't violate somebody else's, you know, marriage contract, because then there'd be social problems and disorder. But not because it's a bad thing to do. That's because it's going to be a lot of trouble. And even in the ancient worship in Paul's day, he's writing to the people in Ephesus with the temple of Artemis, (laughs) the pagan deity, who people go and worship through many means, but through one of them being prostitution and sexuality. So sexuality is baked into just regular day-to-day life. It's baked into religious worship back in that context and back in that day, and it's normative. It's what you do if you're a person in that society, and you shouldn't feel bad about it. You shouldn't question it. There shouldn't be any light shown upon it that would make you think otherwise. And in many ways, our, our culture today is similar. Sexuality and the, the onus and emphasis upon sexual expression and identity is something that is very prevalent. It's, it's very normative. Although I would maybe suggest that while back in Paul's day, it was kind of normative and like, hey, it's not a big deal. Today, there's actually a little bit more of a moral category assigned to it. Meaning that the pressure we face in the culture around us is everyone is trying to figure out uh, who they are and how they've been made to be and is trying to discern their identity and express it in the way that they feel is right. There is not just a moral category of you do your thing, I'll do my thing, but there's an ought that comes with it in that uh, we aren't just to say whatever you do is fine, but we ought to approve of, right, and to celebrate and to champion the various kinds of sexual expression and identity that are out there and around us today, if that makes sense. So in Paul's case, it's kind of indifferent kind of neutral. In our case today, sexuality is prevalent, it's pervasive, and we are being compelled often by the world to pick up the clothing that would say, see this this way, celebrate that that way, and take up these actions and attitudes that are becoming of that kind of life. And we see that in this way. (laughs) Being a a Christian and heeding Paul's instruction here, it truly is a a counter-cultural sort of thing, a countercultural sort of life we've been called into. So let's take a look at what he's getting into a little bit more detailed. He says, put off a couple of things. He says, put off sexual immorality, which is the Greek word porneia, from which we get the English word pornography, right? We're probably familiar with that term. He says, put off sexual immorality, and in the Bible, this is kind of a catch-all word for any kind of um, sexual expression, activity, experience that takes place outside the context of biblically defined marriage. This is any sexual action, attitude, expression outside of a marriage between one man and one woman for one lifetime before God. Anything, that could be adultery, it could be fornication, sex outside of the context of marriage or before marriage, it could be anything outside of that marriage covenant. Paul says, put away from you any kind of sexual immorality that goes, here's the big idea, goes beyond the bounds that God has set for it and is selfishly pursued to satisfy one's own, you know, desires or appetites, apart from being, you know, loving and self-giving and marked by a concern for the other and the mutual enjoyment of the other and the good of the other, like the kind of love that Christ has met us with, giving up of himself, not to take advantage of, but to do good for the one who is beloved. He says, put off all kinds of sexual immorality that goes beyond the bounds that God has set and is not accompanied by the love that God calls his people to walk in. Following from this, he says, with this, also put off all impurity, 
which is a term signifying uncleanness, which kind of just further goes to describe and, and, and fill out and flesh out what he means by sexual immorality. And the idea with impurity is that there's this immorality, this kind of practice, which involves a, a perverting of, uh, a, a defiling of uh, the, the design that God has. In pursuing that thing and engaging in practices that uh, are not lining up with it, there is that uh, perverting, there is that defiling. Um, as we give into sexual impulses or desires that are uh, not accompanied by self-control. Paul says, put off impurity, put off a kind of way of engaging in these things that is not marked by controlling your desires. Finally, he says, and covetousness. Put off sexual immorality, all impurity, and covetousness. And in this way, uh, this sort of immorality that Paul is talking about here is, is covetousness, which Paul says in verse 5, which we read, is akin to idolatry. And idolatry is taking what might be a good thing in some cases and making it an ultimate thing or a God thing. It's taking something and putting it above God so that you would defy or disobey God in order to get that thing. And he says there's a kind of way we can have actions or attitudes toward sexuality that leads to a kind of covetousness, idolatry, okay? It leads to a sinful behavior, um, toward those who have what we want. It leads toward a sinful scheming uh, in us that would help us to go get that thing. And again, this kind of covetousness. Uh, in the case of sexuality, it's wanting beyond the bounds of what God has given for us to experience in sexual um, relationships, right? It's covetous because God says, here's what I have for you. And we might say, no, but here's what I want instead. This is not enough. I want this. I want that. I want it this way. I want it with this person. And God, this is confining to me. I want to go beyond what you've set out and said is good and right and beautiful. And I'm going to covet and make it an idol and go pursue it anyway. It's an unwillingness to receive God good, God's good gift in the way he's intended for us to receive it. It's covetous. It's idolatry. And Paul says, church, all this must be so put off from you that not only don't do these things, that's actually implied in here. He says, don't, it's not even don't do these things. He says, this kind of stuff, verse 3, should not be even be uh, named among you. <laughs> so get this so far off from me that not, it's not that, just not, excuse me, that you're not doing these things, but it's not even in, in a certain kind of way <laughs> on your mouth. You're not even naming these things. And so what does he mean by that? That these kind of things must not even be named among you. He's not saying never talk about your past. <laughs> He's not saying never bring the truth of what God has to say about these topics to bear on, on your life. He's not saying be, be prudish and be, you know, uh, too embarrassed to talk about an important aspect of who we are as image bearers and as people. But what he is saying is that there is a way even. Yes, how we actually do these things and relate to these things, but even how we talk about things like this, that has to be done with, with care, with a certain amount of appropriateness, with a certain amount of, of fittingness for what it means for us to be the church and to live in the light together, we have to talk rightly about things like sexuality that are weighty and that are important and that matter. Does that make sense? Which is where he gets into with verse 4. Looking down, he says, don't do these things. Let them not be named among you. With that, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which he says are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. says, let there be no filthiness. That is, a kind of talking, and a kind of talking in particular about matters like sexuality that is not accompanied by, not marked by uncleanness. And we all kind of, you know, in intuitively and secretly kind of know, you know, there are dirty words, right? <laughs> there are dirty words, there are obscene things that you, you shouldn't say, that they can't say in some movies, you know, they do, do say in other movies, right? There are dirty words. And Paul says, we shouldn't be a kind of people who even as we are trying to uh, abstain in our actions and attitudes, even as we speak about these things, it should be marked by an absence of dirty words or, or foul talk that might make a, a, a morally sensitive person around us ashamed to, to hear it. He says there shouldn't be foolish talk as we're discussing weighty matters, right, and these good gifts of God. Foolish talk, the Greek word literally means moronic words, just putting those two things together. And we think about uh, the fool, in, in the scripture. How does the fool speak? You read the Proverbs. 
He says silly things. <laughs> he says empty things. He says unhelpful things. The fool doesn't really know what he's talking about. And he takes something important <laughs> and he speaks about it by, by, by trifling with it. He speaks about it by taking something that should weigh a lot, right? And speaking about it like it's a, a light thing, like it doesn't matter that much. And in that way, cheapens the goodness, cheapens the beauty, cheapens the, the, the grace that God would have for us in a gift like sexuality properly expressed. There can be the kind of foolish talk and foolish joking that doesn't take something seriously that God says we ought to take very seriously. And with that, there should be no crude joking, which really just goes to advance that same idea. Crude joking that would take something that is meant to be beautiful and a gift and to undermine the value of that thing by making light of it, by, you know, having raunchy or inappropriate or you, know, you hear the word locker room sort of talk accompany the way we speak about sexuality and sexual activity. Paul says we shouldn't be the kind of people who are making those kinds of jokes. We need to be watching carefully how we speak because how we speak communicates what we value. And if what we value and the way we value those things doesn't line up with what God says about them, Paul says we ought to shine a light upon those things. And so you can be asking yourself and thinking, even as you are approaching these things internally with your actions and attitudes, and it's a private thing, it's not so open right for everybody to see, but how we talk to one another and how we talk about these things together. Even as Christians, we want to do so in a way that will not be unhelpful, but will be helpful. That will not lead us to stumble into sin, but will be leading us to pursue purity. That will not be causing us to... Uh, think less of these things, but more of these things. As Paul, or as it says in Hebrews, to esteem the marriage bed in honor, right? To uh, anticipate that time if you're a single person, when you get to enjoy these things and to prepare yourself for that now by not trying to cheapen or diminish what God has given. And our marriage is to see this as something of a good gift that God has for us. We ought to think, we ought to speak about these things in a way that shows we value these things the way God does. And when we do so, there will be blessing. We'll have a serious kind of joy as we receive these good gifts. But if we don't, and we're putting on the, the clothing of the world in, the, in these regards, we're going to, to miss what God would have for us to receive. I think of a, a, an illustration, a story, in C.S. Lewis's excellent book, Paralandra, right? From the Space Trilogy, if you guys like C.S. Lewis. Uh, it's not that sci-fi. If you don't like sci-fi, it, it's good because I can, I can handle it. But in, in the Space Trilogy, okay, there's a, a character named Ransom. And he is our protagonist. And in the second book, he is finding himself exploring the planet Venus, okay? He's walking around Venus, and it's this cool ocean planet with hills that are floating atop the water. He's going up and down. He's getting used to his new uh, environment. And Venus in the story is, is beautiful. It's not fallen like the earth is fallen. And it's in this kind of Edenic garden-like state. And as he walks around and he takes in the beautiful, the fantastical, and the curious environment he's found himself in, he encounters this, uh, I think this is how you would say this if it's a word, a Venusian plant <laughs> called the yellow fruit on the yellow tree. And having freshly arrived on the planet, he's very hungry, and he's thirsty. And he comes to this wood, quoting the book, where great globes of yellow fruit hung from the trees, clustered as toy balloons are clustered on the back of the balloon man, and about the same size. And he takes the smooth yellow fruit in his hands, and he accidentally punctures it with one of his fingers, as he's trying to figure out, how do I eat this thing? You know, it's an alien fruit. And as he punctures it, he feels this coldness within it. He realizes there's, there's liquid, okay? inside the fruit. And he takes it up to drink whatever's inside this alien plant he's just encountered. And here's what Lewis said. He says, he had meant to extract the smallest experimental sip, but the first taste put his, all, put his caution all to flight. It was, of course, a taste, just as his thirst and hunger had been thirst and hunger. But then it was so different from every other taste that it seemed mere pedantry, that is an, an understatement, to call it a taste at all. It was like a discovery of a totally new genus of pleasures, something unheard of among men, out of all reckoning, beyond all covenant. And he drains it down until it's all gone because it's like nothing he's ever tasted or experienced before. But here's what happens next, and this is what's important for us. He drains the fruit down, 
And as he looks up, he sees the tree has got plenty more on it, and they're fit for the taking. And as he drops one fruit and he reaches out for another, listen to what uh, Lewis says. He's aiming to go to repeat a pleasure he's just experienced that is so intense and almost spiritual. And as he reaches out to grab another yellow fruit to recreate the same experience, Lewis says, but then it appeared to him that it might be better not to taste again. Why would it be better for him not to enjoy that again? Why? Quoting Ransom is thinking, perhaps the experience had been so complete that he had just received, so complete that repetition would be a vulgarity. Like asking to hear the same symphony twice in one day. In other words, he has this experience, but then he refrains from doing it right again because he doesn't want to spoil. He doesn't want to cheapen or make into something common, right? The truly special joy he just received. And there's something to be said about that when it comes to sexuality and sexual expression. There's something to be said about that with any of the good gifts of God that he gives to us. We don't want to cheapen any of these things in the way we receive them and the way we enjoy them, even in the way we talk about them. And this isn't to say for married couples that then enjoying that good fruit should be rare. No, that's not the point there to overdo the illustration. But the point is that whenever it is received, it ought to be received as what it really is, as glorious and wonderful, as a great gift and opportunity to glorify God and to enjoy being human the way he's designed it without any shame or regret or consequence that is negative. God wants us to receive his good gifts as good as they really are and with our actions, our attitudes, and especially for all of us, with our words. Make sure we are uh, accurately describing and accurately uh, speaking speaking about their value. And so consider, church, with the way you think about this particular topic and how you engage in it, with the way you use your words in general, are you prone to make light, to make cheap, to trifle with the things that God has said are weighty and important? And is there room to shine a light upon that garment, that article of clothing that you're prone to pick up or maybe you're wearing right now and get rid of that so that we can better glorify God as we speak truthfully about what he's given to us, as we speak truthfully about who we are in the world that we, we live in. Paul says, put off these kinds of things which cheapen, which downgrade the goodness that God has for us to experience. And positively, right? So last, last, last week we heard there's the positive and negative aspect of this. Negatively, you could say, with putting off something like, you know, sexual immorality. Well, it's really simple, right? We know the Ten Commandments. <laughs> what do they say? Do not commit adultery. <laughs> so negatively, don't commit adultery. Don't do this. Don't do that, right? Outside the context of marriage, there's a lot of don'ts. There's a lot of no's. Negatively, we should not cheapen God's good gifts. Negatively, we should not use obscene language and filthy talk, and we should not take the Lord's name in vain, and we should not speak about weighty, serious, spiritual things like they're a joke. We should not, 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 not do a whole bunch of things. But positively, there's something here for us. It's not just to don't do this, but it's to put on something else. And you know what Paul says in verse um, 4? That's so interesting. He says, put off all these actions, put off all these ways of speaking, and replace them with what? Thanksgiving. Does that seem kind of weird or unexpected to you? He says, replace all of that positively with thanksgiving. Because in some way or another, all those actions and attitudes, coveting, sexual immorality, right, filthy talk, uh, taking those things that ought to be special and making them common, it's, it's going beyond, right? It's going beyond God's boundaries. It's taking something that we ought not to have or taking something in a way we ought not to have it and saying, well, I want it this way. <laughs> I, want it not, I want it now. It's going to be like this. I'll talk about it this way. I'll in, engage in it that way. Whatever that might be, right? All those actions are a taking of, right? Something that maybe doesn't belong to us, speaking of them in a way that they ought not to be in that common category. Whatever it is, it's taking. Paul says, get rid of all that bad taking, and abusing of God's good gifts, especially sexuality, and replace it with what? A giving, a giving of thanks to God for the good things he gives to us to enjoy. So that means in marriage, it's not just don't commit adultery, but it's prioritize and cherish, right, your spouse. Don't just avoid (laughs) breaking your covenant, but love your covenant and enjoy your covenant and prioritize and pursue 
and give yourself to the joy that comes when you love your husband or wife the way Christ intends and see him glorified and see your joy come from that. Positively pursue that. Positively. Don't just try to avoid sexual immorality. Don't just try to avoid pornography. Don't just try to avoid filthy talk. Don't just try to avoid bad movies. Pursue positively purity. Enjoy what is good. Go give yourself to enjoying what is good and right and beautiful and true and have the kind of joys that come with no strings attached that glorify God and don't bring on destruction. Prepare yourself for marriage if you're not yet married by pursuing purity now in anticipation of the good gift God would give you then. Actively and positively pursue your spouse. Pursue marriage. Hold these things in esteem and speak well about the serious things and don't downgrade them. Positively give thanks for the good gifts God has given to us. Because, verse 5 continues, a failure to do so and a, a lifestyle marked by a failure to receive God's gifts the way he would intend and to use them the way he would intend, but instead to give in to all these things, the kind of life that we might have used to live, the kind of life we could be engaging in now or tempted to fall back into, a failure to receive these gifts the way God would have us and live a life marked a certain way leads to, well, a certain outcome. Look with me at verse 5. He says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you, church, with empty words, right? Don't speak empty words and don't receive these empty words. This is serious business, Paul says. For because of these things, all the foregoing that he's mentioned, and living a life characterized by them, seeking to take the good gifts of God and say, these are mine to do with what I please, how I please, when I please, with whom I please, he says, here's where it leads. Because of these things, the wrath of God, that is God's anger, his righteous response toward our rebellion and disobedience and our sin, because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So as Christians, we have to take this seriously because these are the kinds of things that provoke God's wrath. We don't want to joke about the kind of things that provoke God's wrath. And we need to understand that that's the wrath we have been saved from, to live a totally different way, a way that is like Christ, pleasing to God, a fragrant sacrifice and aroma to God as we use our bodies and as we use everything he's given to us in a way that gives him glory. Paul says, avoid these things because they're serious consequences to the one who remains in them and who walks in that dark continually. Those will have no inheritance in God's kingdom. Those will become, even as they are now, but forever, separate from him. So this is serious. And it's so serious that as Christians, we need to be very diligent then to get these kinds of practices these actions and these attitudes away from us, as far away as we can get them. This is a sobering text to us. As believers, we ought to live now the kind of way we're going to be living then, right? On that last day when Christ returns and all these things are put away, right? When all, everything that was torn apart by sin has been renewed and we no longer even desire to walk in that old darkness. We ought to be living now in anticipation of how we'll be living then and live a life characterized by what it looks like to belong to God's kingdom. That righteousness, that peace, that joy that comes from saying, Jesus is the king, and boy, his rules, they're not burdensome. They're a blessing. His rules are for my good. He gives the boundaries and the parameters. Like, you know, you can't play a game if there's no rules and there's no outcome and nobody wins. Jesus sets it up for us to enjoy. And now we're already becoming convinced of that and saying, Lord, you're good. Your ways are better than mine. Help me now to live like I'll be living then when I never even think about going beyond the bounds again, and I'm perfected in glory and, and won't. <laughs> Live now like you will then if you're a Christian. But listen, if you're hearing these things now, and maybe you're not yet a Christian, or you're hearing these things now and you do have faith in Christ, but your, your life, even up to this point in the present, or maybe in the past, has been marked by a, a sexual immorality, by a seeking of joy and, and pleasure in sexual experience in the way you've identified sexually and trying to do any of this outside of the bounds that God has laid out in biblical marriage and in scripture. If that's you today, I don't want you to hear verses five and six and conclude, I'm out of the kingdom then. 
I don't want you to hear these things as serious as they are and conclude that there is no hope for somebody like you. Okay? Those who continue in these things will not experience life with God. They will not have an inheritance in the kingdom. They will not be with him eternally, but, but separate from him. But that doesn't mean that those who have done these things or even now caught up in doing these things cannot enter into the kingdom. By no means. There is no one who is too broken or burdened by sexual sin that they cannot receive the grace and forgiveness of Christ. This kind of sin, though there is a certain kind of consequence and destruction and way in which it can wreak havoc in our lives and in our families and in those around us, it can do real damage. But this kind of sin is not so special of a sin that it can't be forgiven. Okay, church, listen, there's only one kind of sin that won't be forgiven. Do you know what that one is? The one kind of sin that won't be forgiven is the sin that's never asked to be. The sin that's never asked to be forgiven is the only one that will not be forgiven Christ's call to you today. If this is your story, this is your past, this is your struggle right now, and you're going, I'm in this. I've walked in this darkness. I've seen it's a dead-end road, but I don't know if I can get out. I don't know if he'll welcome me into his light. He says, no, no, no. All who would turn away from the dark and come into the light, I will welcome you. If this is you and you're burdened, you're weary, you're feeling the shame, and you don't know if you can ever come out of the dark or if you want to come out of the dark, listen today to what, what Christ would say to you, what he would have for you. He says, come, come to me, all who are heavy laden and burdened with guilt and shame over your sin, and I will give you rest. He says, come to me, all who are sorrowful for how your actions have rebelled against God's design for sexuality and how your practice even of sexuality has hurt or taken advantage of others. He says, come to me, all who feel dirty and shameful and so tired of being caught up in sin, and I will give you rest. He says, come to me, those who are enslaved, and they're tired of it. Those who feel they've only been defined by their sin, and they're tired of it. Come, and I will set you free, and you will find rest for your souls in me. He says, for whoever comes to me, this is good news, I will never cast out. Friend, if this is you today, Jesus will not turn you away. He will not deny you. He will not look upon you and say you are too dirty or too broken or too far gone to be forgiven. He will say that his death upon the cross was enough for you. That, that cross where he was treated according to our guilt and he was shamed by sinful men, that cross where he was shamed as a breaker of God's law, that cross was enough to take this away and bring you to him. That that cross where he bled to wash away our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that that cross was enough for you. That cross where our old self really truly did die with him so that we are no longer that old person defined by our sin is enough. That cross upon which he died, upon which he hung, upon or from which he was taken down, and then buried in the earth, and then raised up in glory to grant us new life and new identity and a new way of being who we are. All this is enough for you to come today. This is the promise that he, he offers, that he extends, that he has for every kind of sinner. You too can enter into the light because Jesus has taken on the penalty, the punishment, and defeated the power even of all of our walking in darkness. So friend, come to him. He welcomes you and he will not turn you away. He brings us all, all who would trust in him and call upon him, into a, a new life that's so much better than the old as we live his ways. Far from these things being restrictive or binding to our freedom, they allow us to be who we really are, freely and truly without regret, but only joy. And this brings us to our second point, which concerns how we walk in God's light together as a church. Point number two, get dressed for the light. Get dressed in the light. Point number two, get dressed for the light. This is verses 7 through 13. Uh, there's something here about putting on your Sunday best that I just didn't work into and develop that, that all the way. But if you think of it later, you can tell me. But get dressed for the light. We're getting dressed in the light 
by taking the, the truth of God's word and what he says and bringing it to bear on the actions and attitudes that we clothe ourselves in. And there's another sense in which we're getting dressed for the light, to be amongst a, a people who are living in the light together for the kind of accountability, for the kind of fruitfulness, and for the kind of witness that that produces in, in through us. And so we can think of, you know, the illustration of getting dressed in the dark and how that doesn't prepare you well, you know, to go into the day. There's maybe another kind of sense, another kind of experience that we have of maybe getting dressed, let's say, uh, for the dark, if that makes sense. Um, you know, there, there's, there's a way in which you get dressed to go into a, a place that is not well lit, <laughs> in which people can't see you well, in which you might be anonymous, you know, or, or not so well known. There's a kind of way you would prepare or get dressed to be in a kind of place where the lights aren't on. Um, you, somebody <laughs> might get dressed differently to go to one of the nightclubs off Broadway <laughs> than they would to go have breakfast with their grandma on the same street the next day, <laughs> one of the local restaurants, right? There's a, there's a kind of way you can get dressed to be in a dark place. There's a kind of way we can get dressed or be tempted to get dressed to put ourselves in a dark place where dark things happen and we're anonymous. We're not seen. We're not known. In contrast, Paul says with the church, the church is a kind of place where we are called to clothe ourselves with uh, the light of God and then enter into a place with others who are, who are doing the same. We come into church on a Sunday, and it is well lit. The lights are on. We can see one another and be seen, and in that way, be, be held accountable to, to turn away from that which is bad, but not just turn away from that which is bad, but to enjoy the greater blessedness, right? What's better about living a kind of life that is not caught up in what he calls the unfruitful works of darkness? And so this is helping us to prepare to be the church by saying, you know, Get dressed and ready to come to church. <laughs> get dressed in the kind of way that you go, I know if I go, people will see me. They're going to see what I'm wearing. They're going to see if I'm matching. They're going to see if my shirt is backwards. So I'm going to take care <laughs> to prepare myself <laughs> to be seen and in turn to, to, to see others as they really are and encourage them in who they are now as a person who's walking in the light. And so verse 7, look at it with me. Paul says, Therefore, do not become partners with them. That is the sons of disobedience. He says, for at one time, you were, listen to this. He doesn't say you used to walk in darkness. He says you were darkness. That characterized you down to the core in a certain sense. You were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. And so he says, as we're getting ready for the Christian life and our life together, he says, you used to be darkness, but now you are light. And because you are light, you should walk, verse 8, or excuse me, uh, continue on verse 8, walk as children of light. We should walk as children of light, verse 9, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. So he says, you used to be this. You were characterized at your core with a darkness, but now God has done something through Christ. As we read in verse 14 at the end, his light has shone upon you, and now his light has filled you. And now you get dressed to come into the kind of place where you're going to be built up and encouraged in and, and cheering one another on as we live this new way. And what comes from that new way? What's the kind of fruit? It's the fruit of what is good and right and true as God defines it. We get to receive these fruits and to live this way in contrast to, verse 11, the unfruitful works of darkness. There's two ways. There's a, there's a way in which as God's light shines upon the church, and I'm going to mix my own metaphor here, it's like shining upon the garden of God <laughs> and good fruit comes out of it when we walk together in his light and walk in this new way together. It's not, again, restrictive. It's not uh, something that it's only marked by denial and no joy and no goodness. We walk in a new way together, freed from those old ways as a community who says there are certain things that God says not to do, but there's so much better that he has for us and we get to live in that goodness experiencing and enjoying that fruit. Conversely, life lived in darkness, and if the darkness shines upon us, there's not going to be any good fruit that's <laughs> born out of the garden of God. There's going to be thistles and thorns and fruitlessness. Because that old way, even as it might seem pleasurable or enticing or appealing, doesn't lead to anything lasting. The joys are cheap, they're, they're momentary, they're, they're fleeting, and they bring about destruction, not anything that's uh, akin to cultivation. So Paul says... Do not be partners with those who walk still in the dark as Christians, but together walk as children 
of the light. And as we do so, as we're walking in the light, trying to live according to what God has said is good and right and true in his word, doing what is pleasing to him, he wants us to practically express that in a certain way, which he gets to in verse 11. He says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. And so here again, we have that kind of, there's the the negative and the positive. He doesn't just say, don't do these things, but he also says, expose these things. Don't do this, but instead actually expose that. Take no part as Christians, as new people, in those old ways of living, doing the kinds of things that you used to do and that those around us still do, right? In secret. He says, but instead, actually somehow expose what is being done in the dark. Don't be like a, you know, like moths that are attracted to the light <laughs> and are so attracted to the light bulb, you know, outside, uh, you know, the, the, the dark house that they don't, they don't ever leave it. They're just so focused on the light. He says, you actually should be people of the light, but uh, not withdrawn from what is dark. There, there's a way in which as a church, we are to avoid walking in darkness, but still engage the darkness, still engage the culture, still engage those around us who are not yet believing and, and living and, and loving the way we do. There's not a separation. There's a kind of engagement Paul's calling for us to, to enter into here. He says, don't just avoid, but expose. And it's Christmas, so here's a Christmas illustration for you. Think of Buddy the Elf, <laughs> right, in the movie Elf, right? We've already heard him once with our Christmas carols, right? The, the best way to spread Christmas cheer is by what? Allie has got it. Singing loud for all to hear. Here's some more wisdom from Buddy for us, okay? Buddy is working in the mall, and he, he kind of falls into it. Um, I don't know if he's in the mailroom first, then he becomes a Santa guy, or if he gets demoted to the mailroom because he can't hack it in the, in the elf world, in the mall. But he's working in the mall. He's in his elf costume. He's working for a department store mall Santa who is not the real Santa, right? And uh, you know what he does? <laughs> not, not only does Buddy, the elf, refuse to work for this Santa, but what does he do? He exposes him as what he really is. You guys remember what he says? Say it louder, kids. You sit on a throne of lies, he blurts out to the mall Santa so that everybody around him in the mall would not be, what? Taken in. Would not be deceived. He engages (laughs) the deception. He engages the darkness by shining a light upon it. Not only refusing to participate, but by shining a closer light on it so that those around might, might take notice. So that those around may not be deceived. So that light might be flickering and uh, flashing in the, the vision and the visual of other people. And so, what does that mean for us then? If that's what it meant for, for Buddy the Elf, what does it mean for us as, as Cross of Grace Church to expose the works of darkness? Let me tell you maybe a couple things it doesn't mean first. I, I think it doesn't mean that we should devote our time as a church to endlessly discussing how dark the world is using our Sunday morning meetings, right, and, and using the, the, the pulpit and using our, our time together to just talk about how dark the world is, to, to critique the way the world thinks, and just to take all our focus and so externalize it that that's what we're doing all the time. We're just so caught up in the darkness, right, in the, in the sinfulness of the world and the sinfulness out there that we might be less prone to turn around and shine God's light on the sinfulness that remains in here. That would not be a way to expose the darkness and to engage the culture, being so outwardly focused. But also, yeah, we're not moths to flame who are just withdrawn from the culture. We have to do more than just, you know, keep our noses clean and not participate. There's a way we ought to engage that's not just withdrawal. Um, And so what is that? (laughs) We're not coming to just decry the world, but we're also called to go into the world and and to engage it. And so uh, three ways I think we can expose the works of of darkness. One, for us as a church, is to see them for what they are, right? To see them according to what God thinks of them. We spoke about this already, but speaking about sexual practices, right? Sexual uh, ideologies, the ways in which uh, the conversation and the culture go around how we ought to express ourselves sexually and uh, how we ought to celebrate this, this, or that, how uh, using our bodies in this, this, or that way is okay and should be uh, approved of. We need to be able to take the light of God's truth and to shine it upon these sticky areas, these controversial areas, and say, hey, here's what the Lord has to say about this. We disagree. We contend that this is good and true, and this is what is going to make for human flourishing, and this is what doesn't. And we need to be clear on that together and celebrate it and live it out in all its goodness. 
That's number one. We need to see those things for what they are and challenge ourselves in the way we think about some of these things to not have little pockets of our, our lives and little pockets of how we you know, live in the world that we don't put God's light on. Does that make sense? We need to be willing to step all of us as much as we can increasingly into God's light so that we don't have parts of our, our living and parts of our engagement and places in our lives where we don't want God's truth to be brought to bear. We need to be open to that as a people. Lord, we want, to ha- want all of our lives to be for your glory. Help us to see it all the way we ought to see it in every part and parcel of, of who we are. Second, as a church then, we should offer a truly counter-cultural alternative. So if we say, hey, it's not this, but it is that, what should we do but give ourselves to enjoying and appreciating and esteeming what God says is good and right for our, our flourishing, for our blessing, for our joy, in our families, in our sexuality, in what it means to be men and women, and what it doesn't mean. We ought to offer a compelling alternative to the world to walk in the joy and goodness of that. It's not just about having the right answer. It's about loving what is right, the way God does, and living that out in a compelling way to then, number three, be able and be positioned and be situated to welcome somebody else into it, to welcome somebody else into that alternative. So we don't just want to step back and say, we have the right answer, you have the wrong answer, or even we're doing it and it's for us but not for you. We want to live in this compelling countercultural alternative in such a way that we are positioning ourselves and preparing ourselves and eager to bring others into it, to welcome others out of darkness and into light. And I say this because look at verse 13 and 14 with me. We're skipping ahead a little bit. But Paul says there's a way that people live in verse 12 that's shameful, right? Even those things are in darkness to even speak about some of these things. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light, so now it can be seen, and the light in which it is seen is what? Verse 14, look at, look at it with me. Probably from an early Christian song, a hymn that was written. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, the one who is dead in sin and trespass, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So how is Paul wanting us to expose the work of darkness? Not just by generally shouting out how bad the world is, how dark things are, but by going to persons, by going to people, by going to neighbors who are caught up in the works of darkness, who are living in ways that are opposite of what God would have for them to be doing, that do not make for their flourishing or blessing, but bring destruction and strings attached with every pursuit of fleeting pleasure. He says, go to people (laughs) such that the light of Christ can shine upon them, that they might come out of darkness into light and be made visible. And in this way, expose the works of darkness around you. And so if we're going to do this faithfully as a church, it's not just to go, you know, pontificate and to, to, to critique and to say how bad things are. It's to go to actual people who are yet far off, shine a light upon them that they would see Christ and that they would be welcomed into an alternative where we say, hey, here's what it looks like. To, to promote and to uh, cherish and to celebrate the dignity of all human life. Here's what it looks like to, to be married and to be married well and to enjoy it. Here's what it looks like to have a family. Here's what it looks like to be friends. Here's what it looks like to have relationships that are not marked by what I get from you, but what we can enjoy together. Here's what it looks like to be this kind of people. Would you come into it with us? And so we agree on what is true. We develop this countercultural uh, position ourselves, and then we go out into the world to welcome others into it. And in that way, people who are in the dark get exposed to the light, and they become light themselves. And not only them, but, but we as well. <laughs> and this is where we'll, we'll, we'll land and we'll close up here. Christ is eager, and he's willing to take those who are in darkness and bring them into his light, and for us as the church, even as we all know, we still struggle in many ways to live fully and openly in the light. He is an eager and willing Savior to shine his light upon us, to help us to more and more be who we truly are, to help us more and more step out of darkness and into the light, and as we step into the light, more and more step into the joy he died and rose again to bring us into, to be the kind of people now that will be forever. The more we get dressed, church, and we'll we'll close here, with the lights on, the more we'll be living today the way we'll be living on that great day. That day that as we sang before and we'll sing right now, that day when Christ, our life, appears. 
and the curse will be undone. And all wickedness will end as mercy overcomes. The Savior will renew in us fully and finally and completely what sin had torn apart. His light will drive the shadows from our weary hearts. Church, we live now, we respond to this now by longing for that day when we see Christ our Savior and in his light are seen by him. Visible in his light and as he sees us, we'll be perfectly loved. We'll be fully freed from every trace of sin or shame and we'll be utterly enjoying the kind of joy that comes to us without any regret. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, we pray that you would shine your light upon our weary hearts, that you would drive away what remains as darkness within us, and that you would encourage us, and you would help us, and you would work in us, that we would love your light more and more. And as we love your light individually, that we at Cross of Grace would be a people who are marked by a love for your light, who are a city on a hill, shining like stars, a people who are radiant as they look to you, so that our friends and our family and our neighbors would see the goodness of the life you offer to us, the goodness of the life that you died and rose again to welcome sinners into. We pray that you would glorify yourself in us as you turn the lights on upon us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.